Hey there, this is Kent Roundy back for part two of uh, treatment of agitation in the emergency room. I have two medical students here with me. Both of you have been here before. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? I'm Miles Brooks. I'm a student at Rocky Vista University. And my name is Dylan Smith. I'm also a student at Rocky Vista University. And Dylan, you and I have uh, started this uh, two-part podcast series uh, what, a week and a half ago, roughly two weeks yeah. ago. And the uh, first the first podcast focused on uh, pharmacological approaches to treatment of agitation in the emergency room. I think we mentioned uh, the number of, of violent episodes that happen in the emergency room, surprisingly high. I think there are a number of case series where those, uh, those episodes of either agitation, aggression, or, or escalation to violence uh, are well documented. Mm -hmm. I think we were also commenting on a very sad article we saw in, in the news today, uh, an emergency room physician who was stabbed in the, the face and head a number of times. And, and I think one of the comments, I want to just set the stage for this uh, podcast with one of the comments of one of the people that were interviewed. Uh, it was uh, Dr. Theodore Christopher, chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Jefferson and past president of the Philadelphia County Medical Society, said that it was shocking and not surprising. He continued by saying, I would venture to say 80% or most of us have either been assaulted or been the victim of some sort of violence by a patient, Christopher said. And then a little bit later in the article, he said, I think more recently there has been a call to report these things and these items, but I would say less than a third of doctors and nurses probably report these incidents. Pretty shocking stuff. Yeah. You have experienced some of this yourself. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, just in the, the few rotations that I've done at this point in my short career um, in the emergency department, I've seen, you know, a handful of incidences where people are being, you know, physically assaulted, verbally assaulted um, by agitated patients in the emergency department. Um, you know, I've seen studies, uh, surveys that where that number goes up to is as much as 85% of providers uh, saying they've experienced assault or uh, some type of act of violence in their career. And I think we were discussing as well earlier that it's likely that that number is underreported as well. It's like that there's a lot of incidents, smaller incidences of, of violence or aggression towards emergency medicine providers um, that just go unreported. Um, and so it's, it's definitely a real issue in emergency medicine and, and one that um, deserves some attention. When we game planned this, we had originally uh, thought about this being a three-part podcast series. I think uh, the limitation was my time and being able to do that third podcast. I, mm -hmm. I apologize. I think that would have been very interesting. Mm -hmm. We focused on, as I mentioned before, medication treatment in the first podcast. This podcast is going to change the approach somewhat. Uh, not that the approaches are mutually exclusive, but rather they would build upon each other. And we're going to look at... Uh, non-medication strategies to try and prevent the use of seclusion restraint or even coercion of patients and provide safety. We have looked at the beta project in the past. And I think that's a project that's come up in a couple of other podcasts. Tell me a little bit about the beta project. I'm not sure we've ever gone into the kind of depth that maybe you have or that you're able to tell us about with the beta project. Yeah, so the beta project, um, it was done by or published by um, a, the American Association for Emergency Psychiatry. And they, I think, recognized a similar problem that as far as acute agitation in the emergency department, there really wasn't 
many guidelines um, or data or evidence suggesting the best practices in terms of evaluating and treating um, agitation in the emergency department. So they set out to, to look at the data, look at the studies and see what was out there and then kind of set forth guidelines that could be used um, in emergency departments throughout the country to treat um, and manage agitated patients in the emergency department. Um, part of that was looking at the pharmacotherapy, which we talked about in this past podcast we did a, a week or two ago. Um, and then they also talk about verbal de-escalation techniques that could be beneficial or useful in, in the treatment of an agitated patient. And in reality, we probably should have done these in reverse order, um, given that verbal de-escalation typically should precede you know, any type of um, pharmacologic intervention um, in an agitated patient. But um, for whatever reason, we're doing them in this order, and hopefully we'll, we'll have a good discussion. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very well-made point. I, th I think that's incredibly important. Agitation, according to the BETA project, is an acute behavioral emergency requiring intervention. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a pretty good definition. And I thought to myself, hey, uh, the DSM, that's the place where you find diagnosis and uh, quite often some information that guides us. Miles, you just went through the DSM and you found what? Um, in the, I think we started, well, tell, tell me about your search. Well, I started in the index and just looked for anything with aggression or agitation and, and, and didn't find anything there. So then looked for a topical guide and really just anything um, that would even mention aggression or at least give us a reference point to go search further into the DSM. And I couldn't find anything. Um, and it was only through after essentially giving up that, that search that I started just to flip through and decided that as you guys were continuing to get ready, I would just read for my own sakes, uh, you know, some random things in the DSM and came upon the glossary of, techni of, te of technical terms. And there they actually do define psychomotor agitation, but that's it as far as finding it outside of, of the diagnostic criteria within these different uh, disorders. But it would be nice to have something that could link us into all the different disorders that you might see agitation in. Yeah, because I, th I think we've read in in the criteria, and, and it's funny because suddenly I'm questioning myself, right? Maybe there is no diagnostic, uh, no, no mental health condition that has agitation as a criteria, but I'm pretty sure that there is. So it's interesting that there's not a, uh, in the DSM, there's not a more clear definition of this. So I, I like that the beta project is kind of um, defining that and taking that in a direction that I think is helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was their their whole intent. They, I think, saw similar things that there's just not a lot of data or not a lot of concrete information regarding agitation and the evaluation and treatment of agitation, particularly in the emergency department or in an emergency setting. And so that was, I think, the main reason behind Project Beta. Now, we, we saw some integrated approaches to treatment uh, or recognition, de-escalation, and treatment of agitation in, a I want to say, a residency program Mm -hmm. uh, and it seemed to be very effective. But we also saw there's a lot of difficulty gathering data. My impression is the beta project is probably more about recommendations borrowing from a lot of literature than it is about here's a well-defined set of interventions with mm -hmm. great data behind that. Can you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of barriers involved in, in producing real quality studies um, and data um, for the treatment of agitation in the emergency department um, with, with 
medications, pharmac pharmacologic intervention, as well as with verbal de-escalation, maybe more so with verbal de-escalation. Um, I think, you know, due to safety and, and other issues, randomization is often not possible in these type of settings. Um, for verbal de-escalation techniques, you know, you can't have a, the, the provider and the patients aren't going to be blinded um, to, to the intervention like they would be with a pharmacologic study. Um, and then as well with, with verbal de-escalation, it really comes down to how comfortable the provider and how, how well trained the provider is at, at providing, you know, these verbal de-escalation techniques, I think can influence the outcome of a study. And so there's a lot of barriers, a lot of factors that, that limit real quality data um, in regards to the effectiveness of verbal de-escalation. There is, you know, secondhand data or kind of indirect evidence that shows that it works. If you look at some of the ph pharmacological studies, um, you can see that there's, you know, a certain number of patients excluded from the study because they were able to be successfully de-escalated with verbal techniques and not need a medication. Um, but there's no real great studies that say this technique, you know, do the A, B, and C, and if you do that, you know, 50% of the time you're going to have success or, or whatever it might be. There's just no real great data out there for that. Informed consent is very challenging in this setting. Yeah, informed like consent you. as well. You you referenced the. Uh, indirect data in a conversation we had about two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. I was incredibly fascinated by that and went back and looked at that. Tell me a little bit more about that indirect data so that the listeners have a, a better sense of, of what you mean by that. So I think describe the study if you wouldn't mind and then how the structure of that uh, data collection and analysis led to a, a suspicion that verbal de-escalation was helpful. Yeah, so one study in particular that I came across was a study evaluating um, droperidol versus um, midazolam for the treatment of, of violence or acute agitation in, in the emergency department. Um, and one of their, um, I guess, exclusion criteria was that was, you know, being successfully verbally de-escalated. Um, and in that trial, they looked at 223 patients in the emergency department, and I believe 60 um, of those patients, so a little over 25% of the patients were excluded from the trial because they were able to be successfully de-escalated with verbal techniques and not requiring the need for uh, medication to, to treat their agitation, which is pretty significant um, in, in that regard. And I believe there's, there's several other studies out there that would show similar things as well. This is just one that, that I happen to come across. My recollection is that I saw this study reference somewhere else as well, and the, the complaint was uh, how did you do that, right? Okay, we want to yeah. know how you managed to de-escalate, but there was nothing written in the article that I recall describing yeah. that process. Miles, mm -hmm. you were a school teacher in a former life, correct, before you went to medical school. And we were talking about de-escalation before this podcast. I think I mentioned something along the lines of, Amongst the articles we read, I came across a comment that said, essentially, medicine doesn't have its own set of de-escalation principles. We've borrowed from uh, martial arts. We've borrowed from law enforcement, law enforcement, right, and from other places. And I think I asked you, um, you mentioned, well, why don't you take over the story at that point? Yeah. And, you know, we never really had to do anything like this too often. Most of my students were excellent. Um, they were, and they were all excellent. They just had, you know, sometimes they were going through things that, that I didn't understand. And, and other teachers seemed to use these a lot better than I did. 
Um, but they would have techniques like meeting the student at their eye level. So if the student is currently in the desk, well, maybe kneeling down and, and, and meeting them right there, uh, taking the student out into the hallway, and and you know just being in the in the education setting that presented itself with a whole you know different set of problems where you might be in the middle of, of a lesson, and it's you know, with how distracting is it going to be to take a student out and to pause that. And so there are a lot of other teachers that did a much better job than I was able to. But thankfully, we didn't have to use uh, those techniques all that much. I think the point is, there's not really a good written set of techniques for a lot of different fields. And I think the beta project tried to overcome this. You mentioned 10 guidelines. Yeah. So the beta project, or project beta, I believe it's actually how it's referred to, um, they kind of break it down into two separate settings, actually. Um, they talk about guidelines for the environment or the setting that you're in and how to be prepared. Um, things like having a, a physical space um, that's conducive to um, verbal de-escalation, a safe space where there's not a lot of objects that the patient could hurt themselves or hurt others with. Um, you should have an appropriate team of people um, that are trained, properly trained to to deal with this, they talk about um, whether a lot of programs or institutions will have like a crisis intervention team that's specifically trained to deal with agitated patients. Um, and those people should be getting regular training, you know, yearly, uh, yearly training um, in regards to techniques and things that they could do. So those are more general guidelines that they give, but then they talk about 10 principles or guidelines that you can use while engaging in verbal de-escalation um, to help hopefully calm the patient. Um, and again, I want to reemphasize too that the Project Beta, it's really about having a collaborative effort with the patient. Um, you know, so much of, of dealing with agitation in the past has been more of a, a forceful or coercive um, treatment option. And they're trying to get away from that and make it more of a collaborative effort with the patients where they feel like they have control over themselves and over their treatment plan. Um, and so the 10 principles or the 10 domains of de-escalation that they call are one is to respect personal space. And I think a lot of these speak for themselves, but to respect personal space, um, to not be provocative, to establish verbal contact. They talk about only having, you should have one individual who's responsible for um, having verbal contact with that patient, um, being concise um, and establishing you know, guidelines and, and expectations with the patient, identifying wants and feelings, um, listening closely to what the patient is saying, um, agree with the patient or agree to disagree. Um, always try to find a way to agree with the patient um, and they give different ways that you can do that on different levels, whether it's something that is easy to agree with or something you completely disagree with. In the worst case, you can just agree to disagree with that patient. Um, uh, setting clear limits and then offering choices and optimism um, and debriefing the patient and staff. And offering choices and optimism, they, they talk a lot about medication and how in an ideal setting, you know, the patient is involved in, in that medication and you can get them to voluntarily accept medication. But even if it's in a situation where things are getting, starting to escalate and the patient is um, becoming more agitated, more violent, and you feel that for the safety of them, uh, for the safety of the patient or for the safety of others around them, you need to give them some medication. Even in a setting like that, still involving the patient and saying, you know, I have to give you medication. Do you want that verbally or do you want it in a shot? Um, and still trying to give them some type of choice or some um, option as far as them being involved in their care. And obviously if that doesn't work, you know, you do what you have to do, but there's always the, the option to involve the patient in their care. 
Now, is that all 10? I was trying to keep track in my... In yeah, my that mind. was 10. I should have numbered them probably as I was going through them, but there, Actually, was, there think, was 10 in there. I think it was more interesting the way you did it. Yeah. Um, one, of the other, one of the other articles that we looked at was the Cochrane Review. Mm-hmm. Um, they talked about an assault cycle. I don't know if you ended up seeing that. Is that something that you yeah. would be able to comment on? Yeah, they, so the Cochrane Review, they were looking um, at various studies and, and trying to find, identify studies that they could use to essentially show which methods are effective for verbal de-escalation. And the result of the study was essentially there was no studies that met their criteria, um, which we talked about some of the barriers to those studies, so that makes sense. Uh, but they talked about the assault cycle and how verbal de-escalation plays into that. So the assault cycle, there's different phases of of assault or agitation. Um, there's typically a trigger phase, so something that, that sets them off, um, and then an escalation phase, uh, and a crisis phase, and then I believe a recovery a recovery phase, phase yeah. and there's one final phase that depression uh, phase. A depression phase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have any thoughts about those different phases? Um, not any in particular, other than that these verbal de-escalation techniques are typically to be used, hopefully, in that escalation phase to prevent them from reaching the crisis phase. And we talked about this a little bit in our past podcast, uh, particularly when we were talking about the Parkland um, study that you had referenced earlier, is that there's levels of, different levels of agitation. um, Anxiety, high anxiety, uh, agitation, aggression, that kind of a scale, right? And I think we had even some breakdowns uh, with the Parkland uh, report where they talked about throwing things was a sign of yeah. physical aggression and <laughs> different yeah <laughs> different I, I, I we're chuckling because I think they defined it very well right right and I think common sense would tell you that there's a certain point you know on that on that scale where you know they're kind of past the point of, of verbal de-escalation no matter what you do you're kind of um, barking up the wrong tree but the, the whole point of this is to recognize and screen for patients early so that you can pick up those early signs of agitation or aggression so that you can then begin the verbal de-escalation process you know, sooner rather than later. And I think yeah. um, if you can do that, that's when you'll start to see success with, with these verbal techniques. That, that's my impression. I, I wish we had like some sort of camera system and some sort of implied consent mm-hmm. that allowed us to watch all of these things. But with, in the absence of data, I think, I think it does make a lot of sense that the sooner you intervene, yeah. the better off uh, the better off everybody is. Yeah. I can think of one instance in particular from personal experience in the emergency department where a patient was was in and was psychotic and had some delusions and was for the most part behaving well. Um, they would get a little agitated, come out of the room and, and say some things every once in a while, but for the most part they were behaving well. But at the same time, there was nothing really done with that patient. Um, they'd come out of the room, they were told to get back in their room. Um, and I never really saw any efforts to do anything with that patient, to treat the patient, to help the patient. Um, and it got to the point where, it, you know, after being there for several, hour, several hours, um, that patient did end up attacking one of the nurses. Um, and then that patient needed, you know, physical restraint as well as um, a uh, IM injection of of an antipsychotic or um, benzodiazepine, I can't remember which. But I, I, I often think back on that encounter and, and 
and recognize that there were several signs that this patient eventually would become, you know, violent or aggressive. And I think had someone taken the time to try to de-escalate and and involve this patient more in their care, that perhaps that that could have been avoided. And I think that's fairly common in the emergency department. Patients come in agitated or um, psychotic, and they're kind of put in a room and and left to to be themselves or to yell at the voices in their head or, or whatever it might be. And and they're not really given the care that maybe they deserve to then hopefully avoid these these violent and aggressive behaviors. So. Seems like you're almost pointing to the idea of earlier recognition with this, but also some sort of collaboration. Yeah. Hey, it seems like the voices are really bugging you at the moment. Is there something I could get you to help you with that? Right? Mm-hmm. Th- that would be, uh, that makes a lot of sense. One of the uh, things you mentioned before, I want to go back to for just a second, and, and I don't want to I think you've summarized really the project beta very, very well. And I think the information from the Cochrane review may be a slightly different take on the same kind of problem because I think they made the case mm-hmm. that, hey, we need to have these strategies in place. Um, but I, I don't I don't think the, the approach of the Cochrane article was to um, develop solutions the way that the project beta is, right? Project beta is, is sort of a, let's start working on this and see how it works since we don't have the ability to test very well. Right. And I think Cochrane was saying, well, let's use the data to make decisions about how we, we move forward. Two, two different perspectives, but a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. But the, the objectives, going back to those, I want to um, repeat those. First of all, safety is the primary objective. And that intervention that you talked about uh, that led to restraint and uh, injections, we think about uh, restraints as providing safety, right, for people that are in the emergency room that might be endangered. And I can also tell you that most of the injuries that we have here at the Utah State Hospital for patients or for uh, staff, that, that risk during a restraint event goes up dramatically. Mm-hmm. So so if we can avoid having both a patient become aggressive and avoid having to use uh, seclusion or restraint, I think we're at our very safest, right? right. And, and I get that sometimes safety does require restraint, but, but the process of restraint isn't always safe. I, there are strange things that happen during those events. Mm-hmm. The, the second thing that's worth pointing out is that restraints in emergency rooms, and I think the data that we looked at on restraints, uh, they're not always safe, right? I think there's been about 140 deaths over the last mm-hmm. 10 years with restraints in the United States. I'm not sure if that's all restraints or if that's ER restraints. I don't remember at this point looking back at my notes. But that's, that's uh, they were largely asphyxiation. Mm-hmm. And so there's now some rules about if somebody's in restraint, they're watched with a one-to-one, so, that, so that's much more challenging. But patients still somehow manage to die in those restraints. And so remembering that a restraint creates one kind of safety but creates another kind of uh, risk is important to note. Yeah. The, the other objectives, patient regaining control, um, avoiding coercion. You mentioned those earlier. And I think that speaks to the collaboration and the giving choices that are part of the options. And I really, I really like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I often wonder not only what role giving choices has in the emergency room setting, obviously in this setting that we're talking about, but well beyond that, right? We we often as physicians kind of have if A then B, but, but I think in psychiatry there's a lot of room for if A, mm-hmm. then B, C, or D are all equally good options and let me figure out a way to 
present each of those and let's find how, how do you and I collaborate to find the best strategy possible for recovery, right? And that's yeah. what I think as physicians, we're all trying to help our patients recover. I think that's very well said. Body language, communication techniques, staff attitudes, environmental controls, We th there's not a lot of data on those things. And yet you see those kinds of things pop up over and over. And I'm, I'm wondering if at some point the literature about that that is has evolved in other areas will come in and, and be more impactful in these kinds of settings. But yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's tough to say. You know, I would hope that it would. But I think a lot of those limitations and obstacles that we talked about may prevent that um, to a certain extent. Um, but the hope is that, you know, at some point there's some real good data and evidence to provide even further clarification on on certain guidelines and things that we know are effective, um, but it's, it's hard to say. I think this is a pretty good place to start wrapping up. Uh, before I do that, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention? No, I think we've covered pretty much everything that I wanted to discuss. I guess I'll, I'll kind of summarize what I've learned and, and what I think um, should come of this, this research that I've done. I think you know, in emergency medicine, there's still, I think, a somewhat of a culture or um, a, a way that, that agitated patients or patients, you know, that are experiencing a, you know, an acute psychotic episode or um, they're handled in a certain way um, that I think was, you know, in the past especially more coercive. And, and I think with Project Beta, hopefully things will start to transition to where these patients are given more control and more um, cooperation with their own treatment plan. And I think a big part of that is training. I think that um, emergency personnel needs to be better trained as far as different techniques and things that they can do um, to verbally deescalate or to deescalate these patients without you know, using force or um, restraints or anything else like that. Um, because like you said, it is you know, for the safety of the patients, but also for them. Um, and so I think, you know, having, if, if nothing else, you know, unified training across the board, I think would be a big start to, to solving this problem. Something that might happen in residency is what you're thinking. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to come back to you in just a moment. Uh, Miles, take home for you. The biggest take home for me, and this has been a lot of my take homes and with, with, with many of these podcasts and, and just being here at the at the hospital is, and this kind of plays off of, of, of your comment, Dylan, um, to just not, to not assume the worst of, of these patients and to, you know, it's easier to think of them as, as a different person, but, you know, if I think, well, how would I want someone to treat, you know, a, a brother or, or, or a parent who's having an episode like this, how would I want them treated? Yeah. I think that's a pretty good way of thinking about it. I, uh, in a in a conversation with a very good friend recently, we were talking about the patriarchal nature of medicine across the board, right? And it's 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 prominent in that here I'm the expert. I will help you and talk to you about what you need to know, and. I don't. I don't know. I. I think that's. I, I'm not sure that is the best way to help support our patients as they seek better help. If maybe that's a way of saying it. And there's a limit to, even even to that point, because there's a reason why, as health providers, we're 
it, why it's frowned upon to, to treat your own family members. And so I think between those two, there has to be a balance. Yeah. I like that. I like that. And then I think, Dylan, the question I wanted to end with you with was, um, well, maybe two questions. First, what was it that surprised you most going through this process? And second, how does this change what you do in the future? Those are great questions. I think for me, the thing that surprised me most was just the lack of, of evidence and data or any concrete guidelines surrounding acute agitation in the emergency department. And I had seen that um, in my rotations. I'd seen how they were all managed differently depending on who the attending physician was on staff that day. Um, but I thought there would be some more, here's the guidelines, this is what we should do, here's the evidence that, that shows why, um, and there really isn't. You know, Project Beta, I think, is the first example of, of someone coming out and trying to set concrete guidelines and recommendations for, for the evaluation and management of these patients. Um, but I was surprised to see how little data or evidence there was supporting that. Um, and as far as going forward, I think similar to what uh, Miles was talking about, what we've been talking about, is just the way that I, I treat and manage these patients um, and treating them just like I would any other patient um, and making sure that they're involved in their care, uh, making sure that I'm you know, giving them a fair shot at, um, uh, at being part of the decision-making process and and trying to, to recognize early and often um, signs that may lead to, to more aggressive and violent behaviors and, and hopefully you know using verbal de-escalation de techniques or motivational interviewing to try to, to, to de-escalate the patient before um, it gets to that point. I've got to say, I, I kept thinking as you were talking, oh yeah, I want to comment on that. Oh, I want to comment on that. Mm -hmm. Man, you said it so well, I don't want to mess it up. <laughs> well, very, very well done. Uh, I would say, Dylan, another excellent podcast in the books for you. Thank you for coming and rotating with us again during yeah. the fourth year. We had a good time having you here. I think this will be your uh, swan song podcast. And unless Miles is back uh, next year, this is the last one for you on this rotation as well. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here on the, at the Utah State Hospital and the work you did while you were here. I appreciate everything you've done. On that note, team out. Team, team out. out.